You're listening to Becoming Fully Alive, hosted by Church of the Ascension in Knoxville, Tennessee. I'm Billy Daniel. And I'm Caroline Vogel. So we have a special guest on our podcast today. A bishop. Our bishop. Our bishop, Bishop Brian He's going to be talking to us about, uh, well, a whole host of things, his experience as being a bishop, our Celtic service, and and what he thinks people are looking for in their spiritual lives these days. It's going to be good. Oh, it's going to be great. Spiritus Knox is a center for spiritual practice and learning. We set up a rhythm of Sunday evening offerings all at 5 p.m., The first Sunday of the month is our book study. Second Sunday, breathing under the stained glass. Third Sunday, our monthly Celtic service. And fourth Sunday is tools of aliveness. You can learn more about all of these offerings at our website, spiritusnox.com. So we're here with Bishop Brian Cole, Bishop of East Tennessee. It's so great to have you on Becoming Fully Alive. Mm-hmm. Thank you for the invitation. Um, so we want to get started, maybe just invite Bishop Cole to share a little bit about his life as bishop here in East Tennessee. Yeah, he's getting ready to celebrate five years of being our bishop in December, so Bishop, how's December second. December second. And consecrated bishop in Church of the Ascension. Yes. So how's it been? It's been great. I, uh, as a parish priest, and I loved being a parish priest. I would have said to you, I would never, ever, ever want to consider being a bishop. But it wasn't till the East Tennessee process unfolded, and um, some folks said, "You ought to look at this." And I realized as a parish priest, I ask people to consider how God might move in their lives, and it would be wrong for me to not ask the same question for myself. Mm-hmm. So um, it was a delightful process that brought me to East Tennessee. Uh, before I was consecrated at Ascension, uh, during the walkabout, so there was a week in July of 2017, and there were five folks considering becoming bishop and five spouses, and we were traveling, we were barnstorming across East Tennessee, and they let us spend 30 minutes at Ascension. It was a really packed schedule. It was hotter than blazes outside. (laughs) And they said, now you can spend 30 minutes in this space. And Ascension was like wonderfully chilly inside on a hot July. (laughs) And so all the five candidates we all kind of went to our own spaces, and spouses went to their own spaces. So I prayed in Ascension in July of 2017, you know, not knowing, like, am I coming back to this space again? How, what will it feel like if this is not what you do next? So even before I was elected bishop, Ascension sort of took up space for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's clear to me that there's a hum. Whenever I walk into Ascension, there's a hum. Uh, those places where people have prayed a lot. Yeah, not just, not just the HVAC. Not just the HVAC. And uh, it, there's a hum. There's a spirit there. And uh, again, it's almost five years. And I have. I, I didn't realize you could enjoy... I, I, it was clear to me you can enjoy being a priest. I didn't realize you could mm. enjoy being a bishop. Mm. It does sound strange. 
Yeah. Well, and <laughs> oh, you know, wonderful and, thing to be able to say. Well, and I think you know there is, and I've, and I've encountered them before. Sort of the model of the beleaguered bishop, mm-hmm. you know, you know, the weight of the world on your shoulders, and but the bishop that ordained me, Bob Johnson, in Western North Carolina, ordained me a deacon, a priest, and helped consecrate me as a bishop. Mm. He was always smiling, mm-hmm. and he. Um, in any sermon I ever heard him gay, give, at some point he would say, I am your bishop, and he would stretch his arms out wide. Mm. And um, at the time, I thought it was almost like a gimmick. Mm. And now I realize, like, no, he he wanted to be in, in connection with people and communion with people. And I called him and I said, you're going to be my model for being a bishop. Mm. That I think people... With any leaders, right? People want to have a sense of the people that are helping lead us and guide us are enjoying this, right? Yeah. And um, as a bishop, it moves me to know that every Sunday, people pray for me. <laughs> um, every Sunday, they walk into churches and my f- pictures there, <laughs> yeah. which can be they weird. see it right when they walk in the door, doesn't it? Yeah, right. and you know, and and um, so a sense of like uh, that we're in this together, and uh, so it has been a delightful. I mean, I've had to grow. Uh, and there have been places where I I found more space in me than I didn't, than I would have said I didn't have, mm-hmm. and so it's it has stretched me. Uh, but I think if a bishop a bishop really needs to be for all people, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, so if you if you try to be for all people, it will it will stretch you. So mm. yeah. Well, it sounds like you've really enjoyed your time as bishop, and and hopefully there are lots more years for you to serve in this diocese. I feel like I'm just getting started. Yeah. And an image I've said to some folks is the last of my furniture has now arrived in mm-hmm. the diocesan office. <laughs> uh, and so, I've, you know, in that regard, I really feel like we are just getting started. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, these are um, interesting days for the life of the church, but I think um, they're also exciting, right? If I think if yeah. you can acknowledge death and resurrection, uh, there's much that... There's much joy and possibility, and yeah. uh, but to also know that it's why we need to be together. Because mm. I think by ourselves we can get isolated and get paralyzed, and uh, this is not a time for isolation or paralysis. Yeah, it, it's not. And one of the, I mean, that's become so true in Ascension, and one of the things we're learning through our Spiritus Knox Center is that people are longing for that sense of community. Right. And, and one of the ways that people are finding it in Ascension is through our Celtic service. And maybe just say a bit for those who don't know about our Celtic service. Yeah, so the Celtic service at Ascension was started um, during the interim time of the Reverend Pat Wingo and his wife, Sarah Scott Wingo. And uh, it's modeled after the Celtic service at St. Stephen's um, up in Maryland. Is it Maryland? Richmond, no, it's Virginia. in Richmond, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Yep. Thank you. I preached there. I should remember. <laughs> but it's, it's a beautiful um, Celtic service. And so we've kind of modeled it after that, but it has flavors of our, of our own. And it's a beautiful service. It's always the third Sunday evening of the month. And there's candlelight, the lights are lower. There's a, definitely a sense of calm. And um, the, the language is more inclusive. Mm-hmm. The, um, there's, there's more sitting, not so much up and down, up and down. 
Um, and the reflection, for example, is shorter than, mm-hmm. than a full sermon that you'd experience on Sunday mornings. Um, and the music is just fabulous. We have oh. different musicians that come in. It's so good. Yes. Mm-hmm. Just a beautiful uh, artist that, that join us and really help to create such a sacred space. And, and so you have um, offered the reflection um, a couple times at our Celtic service, and you're going to again mm-hmm. this coming December, December 18th, um, the third Sunday. Uh, so what draws you to the Celtic service? What, what speaks to you about that way of worshiping? So I grew up in the Baptist tradition, and uh, there's much of that tradition that formed me and shaped me that I still love. Um, but there was also, there was never really space for silence mm-hmm. as a kid growing up in the Baptist church. And um, when I was a junior in high school on a Sunday evening, we had an evangelist from Arkansas who was condemning everything in sight with a lot of noise and a lot of sound and not much space for breathing or silence. And I remember as a kid thinking, I bet the church is bigger than this. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know enough to say, oh, well, there's the Quaker tradition. You know, like I didn't have anything to fill in the blank, but I remember thinking, this can't be the only way people practice yeah. the faith. And it was when I was a Baptist seminarian in Kentucky and visited Gethsemane Monastery and encountered monks and encountered prayer and prayer with a deep amount of silence and realizing the silence was as much the prayer as the actual words or the chants, Mm. that I realized this is what that junior, that kid who was a junior in high school was looking for. So um, it was that monastic worship that made me Episcopalian. And so um, I think for me, you know, I've, I've attended Ascension's Celtic Liturgy both simply as someone in the pew mm-hmm. and have also been a part of uh, worship leadership. Um, to me, it's, it's a, it feels safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, it feels um, like you're kind of coming in from the side. <laughs> and I think uh, in a time where we want to continue to welcome people to the Christian tradition, we have to acknowledge that people have either been truly hurt by the church or our perception of hurt. And so um, for some people, I think Sunday morning feels too exposed. So a Sunday evening at five feels safer, maybe as far as the time and um, everything you described, you know, the the music is is sort of ethereal, the there's space, the invitation to light candles. Um, also, the, the the more integrated language around the earth and the world, mm-hmm. yeah. in a time when the world is literally on fire, and how do we worship God, the God of creation, in the midst of climate change? And so, I think for me, the Celtic liturgy, to get to the very end of it, feels really integrated. Mm. And um, I'm also a big believer that uh, Sunday morning doesn't belong to us anymore. Mm. Oh. Right? That. Starbucks and this thing called brunch and travel soccer and CBS Sunday morning. I mean, they're, you know, we're in this big marketplace and we can either get really frustrated as Christians or church leaders, or we can say, what, what else might God be doing? Yeah. And um, so both as a parish priest in Kentucky and now as a bishop, um, to me, the idea of inviting people to worship on a Sunday evening at five uh, is almost a kind of early Compline, if you will, mm-hmm. or as the ways you begin your week, that feels really 
kind of sane to me. It mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense. And um, I'm, I'm an early riser, so I think you either wake up and worship God <laughs> or I'm, a, I'm early to bed. So, you know, five o'clock is about as late as I need to be out. <laughs> um, so to me, those are, those are ideal hours to think about how you slip in into, into the worship of God in the midst of a really uh, uncertain world. And um, so you, you've you've yeah. given this a, a lot of thought, mm-hmm. and I mean, and it's so good to hear how it resonates with you. And I wonder, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's so much talk and chatter about the church being in decline and losing numbers and everything in between, and and yeah, the people have been hurt mm-hmm. by the church and. And, and it's hard for them to find that point of re-entry. And, and I wonder, is there something about that rhythm that you were just talking about with the Celtic service that you think is, is really resonating with people today? I mean, one of the wonderful things when we, because uh, when we lead that service, the Celtic service, our back is to the people that have gathered. And so we don't know who's walking in the door until one of us stands up to offer the opening collect. And, and it's always exciting these days. Stand up, turn around, and see everybody. The sea of faces. The sea of faces. there, And there's always, I have 50% of the people who are there are always new. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just been marvelous to, mm-hmm. to see when we stand up. And so we know it's resonating. Yeah. We, we know it's connecting with people in, in a way that that Sunday morning experience either is not or um, it's offering something different. And, and I wonder what your sense is on maybe why that might be happening mm-hmm. today or, yeah, I mean, what, what's your take on that? So I'm going to chase a rabbit for a second. Uh, we I, love rabbits on this do. podcast. Yeah. Totally. Um, when I was first ordained a priest, I served a homeless church in downtown Asheville, North Carolina, mm. Church of the Advocate. It was founded by Judith Welchel, who's, I think, one of the most remarkable priests I know, incredible preacher. And um, so I inherited sort of her leadership style of sort of a sermon that really became a sermon of the whole community. Mm. Analogy, the, the room was filled with wisdom. So both the the priest, but also the community would, would really weave the sermon together. And initially I thought my job as a priest in that space was to gather this sort of band of homeless folk and street people and keep them connected as a community. And what happened is um, somebody would disappear. They'd catch a bus to Arizona, or they'd end up in the Buncombe County Jail, or... They'd get mad and leave. And I began to realize that for a lot of folks who live with homelessness or live on the street, keeping commitments are hard, mm-hmm. right? It's a life of addiction or a life of mental illness that you you burn bridges. Yeah. And so I thought, I'm going to be mad all the time if I think my job is to keep this band together. Mm-hmm. And I realized my job was to, is to create an inviting space. And to do that without anxiety. And so I think for me, the way in which the Celtic liturgy transforms the ascension space is you all are not 
you know, rubberneck in the whole time to see, you know, who's, who's behind this, right? You're, mm-hmm. you're attending to the space, you're creating a space for liturgy. And then there is the turn and the surprise of like, oh, you're here. Mm-hmm. It's right? just pure but, delight. But then you're not saying, and we hope you'll fill out a 30-year pledge card and, you know, come forever yeah. as much as we're going to attend to the space now. Mm-hmm. We're going to invite you to light a candle maybe the very first time you ever come. Like we're not going to ask you to do a, a candle lighting practice or <laughs> there'll be a class in six weeks. I mean, I think it's, it's the immediacy of saying mm. we're caring for the space and we're not worried about beyond this moment. But again, to yeah. me, a Celtic liturgy is very much imminent and now and before you and what's here. Mm. And so I think the, the, the care of the space, um, and it, again, it's, it's not fussy, but it's clear that it's done with intent, yeah. you know. And I love to kind of watch um, the folk in, you know, black vestments, and they're walking, and just it, there's kind of a rhythm and a dance to all that. And um, so I think it resonates because um, that sense of just people need a space, yeah. and they need it now, mm-hmm. and, right? And isn't it interesting that that focus that you, you know you, you named it that sort of imminence. Mm-hmm where we're really attending to what's happening right now. And isn't it interesting how that seems to be making the transcendent more accessible? I mean, that, that's, what's been, that's what's been fascinating to me and because that's what those who come to the service keep putting their finger on and naming mm-hmm. is that they're able to actually attend to the divine and oftentimes they'll name it God and sometimes mm-hmm. they're not sure what to call that full presence mm-hmm. and and the beauty of that liturgy is you don't you don't need to figure it out mm-hmm. but it, it is about being present to it and I wonder I don't know um, thinking about how we do our worship in all sorts of ways you know, you, you talked about growing up without silence. I, I mm-hmm. grew up in a similar tradition where we're constantly trying to fill that void, what feels like a void. Mm-hmm. And and I wonder about cultivating space in the way of that Celtic tradition that makes makes it easier for people to tap into that that sense of God's presence that, that is always there. And, and maybe that's something we need to really think about in a holistic way. Yeah, because, you know, I think if we're not careful, we create, you know, sacred space, secular space. Mm-hmm. Right. I've mentioned to you before, you know, as a kid growing up, praying prayers of, you know, inviting God to be with us as if God was, you know, waiting for a call. Mm-hmm. And, and the awareness that, um, again, a Celtic liturgy, um, all those things are integrated, right? All those things are mm-hmm. present. And then I think for people to have a sense of God is with me, God is for me yeah. uh, every day, and this liturgy which arises out of the everyday is a chance to be more more focused on that. But it's I think it again a, a Celtic liturgy that's done well with intent um, comes out of the ordinary, right? And also I think it it looks simple. It looks hmm. easy to do, right? Mm-hmm. And it's often, it's just like when people write poetry, you know, how many words is that? But, you know, it, there's a real care and craft to that, right? To make it look easy, and yet there's a real 
art to it. And I think Celtic liturgy um, has an ease to it, but it really is opening up things for people that otherwise would would stay locked. Yeah. So. So you were reflecting earlier on your life as a bishop, and and one of the one of the things that you were highlighting or noting was that this is a season in which we need to show up for each mm-hmm. other. And I and I'm, I was thinking about that connection between your sense of how we show up for each other and how the order of the Celtic liturgy and making space for silence. It's very deliberate. Um, it's accessible, and how how the two might connect, and in, in, in terms of our ability to show up for each other, for God. Um, yeah. Well, you know, I think for me, the thing about something like a Celtic liturgy, and to say it's the third Sunday of the month, <laughs> um, you put the sign out, you're faithful. Uh, you don't say, you know, as long as 300 people come, we'll keep doing this. Right. It's just like, we're going to do this. Yeah. And I think that's, I think a part of people being able to show up is um, giving them time. Mm. And uh, years ago, I was a part of a centering prayer group in Asheville, North Carolina. That the first few years, it would really be one or two, two or three, one or two but folks just kept showing up. Mm-hmm. And you know, years later you'd walk in and there's 20 people in the room, but there's 20 people in the room because for years there was one or two mm-hmm. who were just faithful. And so I think in a time where COVID has made a lot of us uh, into hermits <laughs> or made a lot of us homebound, um, the idea that there's this invitation there's this liturgy at Ascension. It's every third Sunday. Um, you can keep saying that, knowing that for many people, it will be the fifth or sixth or seventh or eighth time they consider going that they will go. Right. Sure. And so just, I think at some point, people can understand an invitation that feels really free of anxiety, free of shame, free of guilt. And it's not that we missed you at church, feel bad about yourself. It's that... You miss something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, that's not a that's not a, a Gnostic. You're not a part of the elect. It's like something happened. Yeah. But it's okay because we're we're going to do it again. And, and, and we don't want you to miss out. We don't want you to miss out. Yeah. So it's it's yeah. a happy invitation, right? It's yeah. not a yeah. shame or guilt. Because um, I think in that regard, you know, if you had this sort of liturgy, but you promoted it in such a way that sort of beat the drum of guilt and shame you're undercutting the very thing you're promoting, right? And exactly. so you're going to offer the invitation in a way that feels integrated to the theology of the worship. Yeah. And that that really draws on something that um, I have a growing appreciation of, which is talking to people after the Celtic service, especially the people who I've never seen before, those faces in the sea that I'm, um, yeah, just getting acquainted with. And... Speaking with them, I'm, I'm really, like I said, having a growing appreciation that it's not always that people are hurt by the church or have been hurt by the church. Uh, that is certainly um, a, large, a large portion of people who are looking for alternative ways to still be spiritually fed and not um, very much hope not to repeat that hurtful experience. 
And um, there's also a growing amount of people who are really uh, looking at their lives and saying what works for them and what doesn't. Like people don't want to have to check their authenticity, their integrity. They want to be able to bring their wholeness into a worship space. And, you know, I, I've said uh, several times um, that, you know, for example, when I'm, when it's, um, when it's voting season, I need, I need to pray about my voting, mm-hmm. right? I, I need to be able to bring the wholeness of my being into that worship space and connect with God on that. And so I just, again, I have this growing respect for this idea that it's not only people who have been hurt that are looking for new spaces and new opportunities to worship and practice, have find spiritual practices and engage, find meaningful community. It, it's also people who are really exploring their own sense of authenticity um, and their own sense of integrity and what, and that integration of self, right? Yeah, I, you know, I think we're living in a time of real spiritual ferment, almost like the end of the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And I think all the more, I think people are looking and searching so all the more the church, we have to be careful that they don't first meet our our anxiety. Right. Yeah. Our, our sense of it's all falling apart. Mm. So I think that's why we all need, you know, get your therapist, get your director, do your work somewhere else. And then when they walk in the door, greet them with hospitality and lightness, not, oh my gosh, you actually came, right? <laughs> um, don't, don't you realize we're in a post-church world? What are you doing here? Um, and so I think I think that sense of if we can if we can meet this moment, and again it's not about going back somewhere, but if we can meet this moment, I think there's some deep deep spiritual riches that we're going to discover that we've never really known, right? Right, right. And and just like this podcast is called uh, Becoming Fully Alive. I mean, I think that's really what we hope for people when they come to the Celtic service or several of the other things that we're offering. Well, everything that we're offering. Everything. Every single thing that we're offering. Including Sunday mornings. Including Sunday mornings, (laughs) including um, more traditional like adult formation on Sunday mornings. Like everything we're doing, we're really doing with open hearts, uh, very prayerful with God of what's going to help people feel more, not just feel, but become more fully alive in God, you know, in the divine. And so I think it's a really exciting time um, in the church. And um, it's, it's... I think it's also interesting you mentioned voting. I voted early last week. Um, you know, voting is a, is a kind of contemplative practice, right? Sure. I mean, you walk <laughs> into... Okay. Uh, I think, well, I think for me, I think with the awareness of like, at some point you get to go to this little space and you get your pencil and you get to, you get to color and you kind of do it with a certain amount of quiet. And, um, and, and there is again, a kind of a dance of people doing this almost like walking a labyrinth, but you're walking a a public square of a sort. And, um, Mm. so yeah, we live in a time also for some people voting is a full contact sport, but, um, (laughs) I think, I think the, the degree to which it's a contemplative act, again, is a, is a reminder to say, and I think for me, why the thing about being at a Sunday evening at five Celtic liturgy is I want to take that moment 
when Tuesday morning, if I'm in an anxious meeting with someone, or Wednesday night, I'm in a vestry that feels conflicted, some of that contemplative space gets to show up in those spaces, mm-hmm. right? And um, I think, again, that's that integrated life. It's that not that the person who comes to the Sunday evening at 5, liturgy has to become a full-time Christian monk, but there, there becomes this reservoir in them that they get to tap in other other parts of their lives. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and, and I, I love that image of the reservoir. Um, we've talked about it before on the podcast. It's a favorite analogy by Bernard of Clairvaux. And that that sense of living from the space of something like the Celtic liturgy and uh, Robert Sardello in his book Silence talks about how what we're what we're really after as humans living into that fullness of our humanity is being able to silence all the noise within so that when we're in that chaotic space and we're in that difficult situation we can attend to it from a space of wholeness mm-hmm. and and so connecting that with the celtic liturgy i think is um, really spot on because in order to have some of that inner silence, we need some external silence. Mm-hmm. And and that's difficult to come by these days, especially in our churches. Yeah. And, and so this particular Celtic liturgy and ascension does create that space, but it creates it with the people who have gathered. And, and that's what I, I think is so wonderful and, and, and it can carry over and, and again, as you say, that reservoir that sort of continues to uh, build up our spiritual reservoir within so that um, when we do face that situation, we, we have these meaningful experiences where we know we're in contact with God, that God is not somewhere else, that God is always with us. And so we, we don't have to succumb to the noise and the chaos. We actually get to be present to it in the same way that we're able to be present and show up in a Celtic liturgy. Yeah, and I think I think the, the sense too that we that we need to remember is yes, I can be in my house and sit in silence for twenty two minutes, and that's prayer. There's also something powerful if I sit in silence at ascension with other people. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, if 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 over time you have prayed in silence with others, there's a kind of knowing of each other yeah. that you really can't describe, but it's real. Mm-hmm. And I I have felt that in centering prayer circles of people that I've prayed with, and then you you leave, you don't stick around for conversation. <laughs> But over time, to pray with people in silence, their silence and your silence and the silence of God, there's a there's a there's a connection there that can go deep with people. Yeah. That doesn't involve, you know, you and I doing a whole bunch of Q and A, but just the sense of I've I've been with you in silence. And Cynthia Bourgeau, uh, incredible teacher of prayer and silence and mysticism and uh, remarkable human. Uh, priest came and spoke to the house of bishops which is a pretty intimidating group of people uh, becoming less intimidating i think for hopefully good reasons but a part of her 
presentation to us was we sat in silence for 22 minutes mm. with 150 bishops. And later, some of the older That's bishops... a lot of silence. Yeah, for people who are ready to talk <laughs> at the drop of a hat. Um, and realize some of the most important work we did that week together was those two times of silence, mm-hmm. right? And because I think we often, especially religious leaders, we often speak um, because we're afraid to be silent, mm. right? And I have to also be careful uh, for me, for some people, silencing in religion is about shame, right? Yeah. And right. so whenever we talk about holy silence, there's also a silence that is repression and... Mm-hmm ignoring and silencing and that's obviously not what we want to talk about yeah right yeah and i know you love reading thomas merton i mean when you talk about thomas merton i almost feel like he's a dear friend of yours Mm -hmm. and can you share just a little bit of you know what you've learned about silence um from all all your time with your friend Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so thomas merton um so i grew up in the southern baptist tradition and it's a it's a there's much good in that tradition. Um, I grew up in a branch of it that was very much uh, anti-intellectual. Mm. And I remember thinking, you know, when in doubt, be afraid, was basically, you know, uh, that kind of lead with fear and be afraid of the world. So for me, Thomas Merton, I was 22 years old at the Baptist Seminary in Louisville, and this professor who had known Merton, so Merton died in 1968, so in 1990, I'm going to Gethsemane Monastery and encountering the monks there for the first time and learning about Thomas Merton. And learned that, you know, Merton was this incredibly bright, thoughtful, creative writer who then became Roman Catholic, who then tested a vocation as a monk at Gethsemane and stayed there until he did a trip to Asia and died tragically in 53. What I loved about Merton is while he was deeply committed to silence and the interior life, he was also an extrovert. Really? And I'm, I'm an extrovert, yeah. And I've even heard it said that they think Merton was an Enneagram 4, you know. And I'm always, always a little suspect about going back in time and labeling people. <laughs> sure, but, sure. Um, but Merton, Merton loved people, and he loved meeting people. And he wrote, he corresponded with people all over the world, and he, he wanted to be a hermit, and that he also wanted to be with people. Mm-hmm. And, and I, so I love I loved the contradictions in him, right? Mm-hmm. That I, I desire silence, and yet I can find lots of ways to avoid it. And, um, and I, I want to be with people, and yet I know if I'm not careful, uh, we can end up using people in the process of being with them. Yeah. And I think Merton, you know, he just wrote so widely, and he also allowed himself to grow in public. Mm-hmm. You know, the early Merton and the middle Merton and the late Merton are really different people. Mm-hmm. And I think too often we think as spiritual folk, we're supposed to somehow not move. And obviously, if you if you don't move at some point, you break. And so to me, Merton, he moved. and um, But he also, and this is helpful for me, having often lived in sort of off-the-beaten-path places, he went to the middle of nowhere, and then he made it the center of everything. Right, mm-hmm. so he goes to this monastery, middle of nowhere, Kentucky, and now just how many global pilgrims have made yeah. their way to that center? So he allowed a no place to become the place where God m- met him, mm-hmm. and uh, 
And I've heard it said that he's the patron saint of the spiritual but not religious. Mm. Because I meet people all the time who want to talk about Merton who often are no longer in anyone's house of worship, mm. but for them Merton becomes an important uh, writer, thinker, seeker, guide, teacher. Well, that's a, a subject for a whole other episode on the podcast. Mm. Um, Bishop, it's been so great to have you on Becoming Fully Alive, and I, I wonder, um, just by way of closing, if you might have some sort of parting word for people that, who might be searching for a space in which to connect with, connect with God, connect with community here in East Tennessee. I have a new favorite word. Mm. One of my new favorite words is disillusioned. Mm. Mm. Because so often people say, you know, I was really into this and then I got disillusioned. And, um, you know, really the idea of being disillusioned is you had these illusions and then they fell away. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think sometimes people say, well, I'm, I'm done with the church or I'm done with Jesus or I'm done with fill in the blank. Um, I think often really hopefully what we're done with was some illusion. Mm. Right. Mm. And so, like, congratulations, you're disillusioned, right? <laughs> um, and now and, you're ready for yeah, church. Yeah, now you're because. And again, I'll, a quick aside. Um, years ago, I was in Asheville, North Carolina, as a parish priest in All Souls, and a woman came to see me, and she said, "Letting you know, I'm leaving the church. I'm done with Jesus." And somehow, the Spirit said to me, "Well, that's great." And <laughs> I handed her a copy of Cindy Bourgeau's book, Wisdom Jesus. Oh, yeah. And um, by the grace of God, she took it, she read it, and she's like, oh my gosh, no, I'm not done with Jesus. And, you know, she was done with some other fifth grade version that yes. didn't, she was done with yeah. plastic Jesus, right? She was done with something else that didn't work anymore. Yes. And so I think for me, I would say to folks, if they're listening to this podcast or people you know, to, to allow the idea to be disillusioned is actually an important spiritual step. Mm. Yes, right? As part of the evolution. To, yeah, because yeah. if, you, if you're never disillusioned, at some point you're living in a fantasy, and it's mm. not real, right? right? Yeah. And I think for me so often it's those places where the scales fall off your eyes and you lose those illusions, but you can also really see, and mm. you can see that God is present, and not yeah. just in the church but in the world, which gives you the courage to go back in the church to say, I think God is here too. Yeah. So. So disillusion as an integral step to becoming fully alive. Mm. Yeah. 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 Bishop, thank you. Thank you all. It's been thank a great you. conversation. Thanks Absolutely. for doing this podcast. Yeah. We'll look forward to having you back. Definitely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Becoming Fully Alive. As a reminder, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. And if you would like to review us, we encourage you to do so as long as you have something good to say. Because we want to spread the joy. (laughs) (laughs) And also a reminder that tomorrow evening, Thursday, November 17th at 7 p.m. here at Church of the Ascension, we'll be hosting Laurie Brock, who'll be discussing her book, God, Grace, and Horses. Our Bishop, Brian Cole, will be here to interview her. It'll be a lovely evening, and we hope you can join us. And don't forget, this Sunday morning here in Ascension at 9.15 a.m., we're going to be talking about all the goodness that's happening here in our church. You don't want to miss out on learning how you can get engaged and become more fully involved here in, in this church. 
And then Sunday night. Sunday night we'll have our uh, monthly Celtic service starting at five o'clock. We have lighting of candles. There's uh, music starting at roughly five fifteen, and the liturgy, the service itself, begins at five thirty. So we hope that you will join us for a beautiful candlelit service with some beautiful music and a short reflection. So much goodness. So much goodness. Oh, and just to say, on the horizon, a week from this Sunday, so November, uh, Sunday, November twenty seventh. At 5 p.m., we'll be doing our next Tools of Aliveness. We're going to be talking about practices for the season of Advent. Sunday, November 27th, is Advent 1. And Advent is the season in which we wait for the coming of Jesus into the world. It's a beautiful season. So come and join us for some practices to um, allow you to, to drop into some practice of waiting. Thank you.